Palm Sunday is the week before Easter. We are celebrating something that happened a few days. It wasn't like the exact week before kind of thing. Um, but it, this happened a handful of days before uh, what we would celebrate uh, as Easter, which is the uh, death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, this is the week before, and there's this, there's this thing that happened. It's always caught me. It's always been interesting to me that Jesus comes into the city, and uh, he's very, very popular. He's superstar popular at this particular point. He's healing people. He's doing all these miracles. A lot of stuff's going on. People are listening to what he's saying. They're liking the message. It's, it's, it's attracting a lot of people. And, uh, and so he goes and, and gets this donkey. It's never been ridden before. He rides it into the city. And as he's riding into the city, everybody takes these palm leaves um, like these. And, and um, I don't know if Jewish palm leaves look different, but I think they look the same. And they begin to put them down in front of the donkey. Then they take their, their, their coats, cloaks, all that kind of stuff. They take them off, and they set them down in front of the donkey so that the donkey... If you think about this, this isn't like 20 people. This has to be hundreds and hundreds of people for this to actually work the way that Scripture says that it works. And so all of these people are putting their, their coats and their palm leaves and everything down the ground as a sign of respect. And it's also, not to go into this in great detail, but this is what they do for military leaders that have won a battle and they come in. And, and so they're, they're, they're giving all of this, this homage and this amazingness uh, celebration to Jesus to the point they don't even want the donkey walking on the dirt. They would rather the donkey walk on their coat um, because of, of how much that they're respecting Jesus. And it's always been interesting to me that in less than one week after this moment, many of these same people are the ones that are standing there shouting, crucify him, when it, they are asked, do you want us to release Barabbas or would you rather uh, us release Jesus? And they said, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. These are some of the same people. And I don't I don't understand that. I mean, I kind of look, when you look at the political scene today, where it seems like that whatever, whatever the latest uh, blurb or, or, or tweet or CNN, something that happens, it's like our whole country goes another direction. We just all sway another direction. It, this, is, this is something I, ha- I, didn't, I haven't really seen until about the last decade. And so it kind of, to me, it's almost like, oh, that's, that's kind of how this could happen. That one week, they're all in favor of Jesus. He's the man, not just they like him, but superstar status. And less than one week later, they, they hate him so much that they want to kill him. That, that's, that's amazing to me. It's mind-boggling. So we see where Jesus is in this last week of his life, and he understands this at a very deep level, and he knows what it's going to. And I, I've talked about this before, that, that, um, they, that Jesus grew in the knowledge and the wisdom of God. He didn't just know everything as a kid, but by this time, he's got it all understood, what his plan is, what the plan is, what the role is. In fact, I believe he had it all this understood before he started the three, last three years of his life. And he's saying, this is what I'm doing. This is what I came for. I breathe air so that I can die on the cross. And so this is where he's heading to. Now, he's been telling these disciples, his followers, for quite a while, um, basically the entire three years, that he's going to die. In fact, his dying is what accomplishes uh, the goal as this uh, messianic direction, prophecy that's happened about him. He has to die. That nobody's buying it, nobody's believing it, they're not understanding it, it's, it's not connecting in their head. You can see from many things that they say and do. In fact, at one time, Jesus says, I've got to die, it's the only way this can happen, and Jesus, uh, Peter actually rebukes him. He says, no, you don't need to die, you know, we, we, we like you a lot, you're the man, you're cool, all this stuff, you don't have to die. And Jesus turns around and looks at Peter and rebukes Satan at Peter. To the point where I, I believe part of the reason this is such a strong thing is I believe that, that 
while Peter is talking, Satan is whispering in Jesus' ear, and, and it might have been having a little bit of effect. He might have been processing this a little bit, and so he rebukes Satan at that moment that you're not going to deter me from going to the cross. You're not going to detract me. This is, this, is, this is where I'm headed. This is why I'm here. And so we see where this last week of Jesus' life, uh, he's telling the disciples, doing all this stuff. Now, I was thinking about this last week kind of mentality. There's, there's, a, there's a part of me, I've said this before, where I wish I could be at certain places in Scripture just to see, just to watch, sometimes to be a part of it. Um, I would like to have been a part of some of the things just as a, like in some of the battles and things just to, just to be a part of the, the amazingness of it. There's, there's this one thing that I've always wished that I know it's very counterintuitive. It's wrong. This is, doesn't make sense, but this is the way my heart is is I wish I could be with Jesus this last few days and specifically the last few hours while he's in, like, in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and he's, and he's struggling over this, and nobody's with him. Everybody's falling asleep. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody cares. It's not urgent for anybody else. And Jesus is saying everything is culminating right now. All of history is hinging upon this moment, and nobody's getting it. Nobody's seeing. The disciples all run away. I, I, one guy literally ran away naked because he was so scared, pulled his clothes off, and he didn't. Somebody else did. And, uh, and, and I don't think that's what happens when you get scared. But this, this moment that I wish I could be sitting there in the garden and, and, and so I could defend Jesus, right? So I could stand up for him. So when they came to get him, I could say, no, you're not going to do this. When they're trying to beat him, I said, no, you're not going to do this. But, but you understand that's counterintuitive to the whole thing. That, that, that rejects the idea, I'm doing the same thing that Peter was doing when Jesus said, I've got to die, and Peter tried to talk him out of it. Without trying to, I'm trying to protect, I'm trying to, and it's not fair that Jesus has to go through this. I mean, we are starting right now today, that, in, in that, that this was about 2,000 years ago, but we're starting this week. I've been at the, I've been, this about, this whole thing is about this. And so, I was thinking about the last week, I've been, at the, I've been with many people over the years in the last week of their life. And, um, they, you know, they know they're sick, they've been, the family's been called in, they know they have a few days, a week or two, or something like that. And uh, I, I've just been with many people over the years that that's the case. And, and they call in the family, and, and as the pastor, I try to help with that. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do. And, and I've been standing there when, when somebody takes their last breath, and all the family's standing around. There's something about that last moment when all the family, you can call in everybody and you can talk to them and you can say your goodbyes and you know it's going to be difficult, and, but, but you can say your goodbyes. There's a very different thing, feeling, context that goes on when somebody dies suddenly. There's not, it's not the same. There's, there's not the same kind of um, closure. Even though they're both very sad events and difficult, there's a difference when they can call everybody together and, you know, I hold hands and pray together and all that kind of stuff. There's a difference. When there's a suddenness, there, it's like it's, it, it's, there's not a, an understanding the same way. It's not the same kind of closure. It's not the, your mind and heart doesn't do the same thing. You, you ask a lot of questions. You try to figure things out. You wonder stuff. And I, I was thinking about this in this last week of Jesus where he tells them over and over and over that he's going to die and they don't get it and even though he had been telling them when he dies, it still is a sudden thing for them. It doesn't have, 
He'd, he'd called them all around. I'm going to read this. He'd had dinner with them and all this stuff, and they still weren't getting it. And so there is this disconnect, and this is part of the reason why I think Jesus shows himself to them in, in part of the reason, shows himself to them quite a few different times afterwards because they're not, they, ha, they didn't process it properly. They weren't thinking of this. Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, gathers them all together. This is the Passover dinner. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table, and Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. They still didn't understand this suffering thing. Is you going to have a rough week? For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. doesn't mean he's not going to eat again until then. Um, he could have had a snack later. That's not the thing. It was the fact that he's not going to have Passover again until we all do this together. I think that's cool. He's, he's waiting for us to get to eternity so that we can all have Passover together. And that's when we're going to do it again. Which tells you that we're going to have a communion, but a real big, a legitimate one, that's, that's Passover dinner. We're going to do that with Jesus when we get to eternity. I think that's pretty cool. So, so then he says, For I tell you, um, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and, he, and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. I'm going to come back to that. After supper, he took another cup of wine. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This, this last cup at the end of the meal is different. What we, what we do is we kind of blend it all together, and we've got the little grape juice and the little cracker, and we blend it all together, and we oversimplify it down to this, and we call this communion. This was a, this was a major big meal that Jesus had with them, and he takes the drink during the during it, and he passes around, and they all drink together, and then which is where the Catholic Church gets some of that uh, visual, how they do communion, you know, the, priest gives you the drink. It's kind of from this moment. And then, then they take the, he takes the bread and breaks it. And this is what we would call communion. And then after the dinner, like later on, and a Passover dinner was about three to four hours. So at the end of this, then he reaches out and he does something that if, you're, if you don't know the context of it, if, if you don't see it, you miss this when you just read what he, what he says here. He says at the, at the end, he took another cup well, when this other cup that he's talking about, they would have a, depending on how the Passover was set up, most likely it would look something like this. They would have a place setting, just like everybody else has a place setting. They would have a place setting um, in, kind of toward the, the center of the table that would be for the Messiah. And there would be a cup sitting there, and they would put wine in that cup, and, they, and, and nobody would touch that place setting, and nobody would drink out of that cup. Why? Because it was for the Messiah. It was, it was visual symbol so that they would remember that this entire thing was about the fact that the Lamb in Exodus was prophesying of the Messiah that is coming. And that the Messiah is coming, but he's not here yet, and so that is an empty place mat with a, with a cup of wine. And at the end of the dinner, they would, they would pour the cup of wine out because nobody was allowed to drink it because you're not the Messiah. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. Jesus is, is having Passover with these disciples, and he is the Messiah. The Passover is about the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. They didn't, they didn't totally understand that. They didn't get it. But then he reaches across the table. This is after everything's over. He reaches across the table, and he grabs that Messiah's cup. He says, now this is the covenant that I'm talking about. 
and that he drinks that. That nobody in there could doubt what he was trying to tell them. He'd been saying it over and over and over, but they weren't, they weren't getting it totally. But when he reaches over and he picks that cup up and he says, and this is what I'm talking about. I'm the Messiah. The covenant is now. You're seeing it right now in front of you. And then he drinks out of the Messiah's cup. He says, this covenant is going to be confirmed with my blood. Now, a little bit earlier when he's breaking the bread, he says, do this to remember me. I want to, I want to look at this a little differently. Maybe. Maybe you've seen it this way before. But to really process from a memorying standpoint, a trying to, to look back and have memories and remember stuff, and to what this would look like, and all of us are going to be at different places. Do, do you realize that the disciples only had about two and a half to three years max of memories of Jesus once he dies? Forty years later, they only have a three-year window to remember back of the time that Jesus was with them. Max, that's if they were the very first guys that were, that were picked. Many of us in this room have much, much longer memories of Jesus Christ. Much longer than three years. Some of you, it may be very, very fresh, very new. But this is what I want us to process, is when Jesus says to the disciples, do this to remember me. He's talking about the drink, he's talking about the bread, and we're going to do this at the end. Do this to remember me. Is there the possibility that he's talking more? Now, I'm going to do something that's called, uh, I'm being a little extra biblical. That's not a good term, by the way. That's, um, that's, that means I'm adding, okay? Now, I don't think I'm necessarily adding, but, I, but you might. So just process with me and you make the judgment of whether I'm being, I don't, I'm not doing it heretically. I'm just saying, let's think about something. We understand when Jesus says, do this to remember me, he is reaching back um, 3,500 years, and he's going to the time of the, the uh, Exodus, and he's talking about the lamb where they took the blood and put it over the doorpost, and, and that's what covered and protected them. And he said, and then the, the redeemed them out of slavery, and he says, this is a remembrance, this Passover has been a remembrance meal forever that we're doing, thousands of years that we're doing this, and this is what you're remembering. And he picks up the cup and he says, now I am the fulfillment of this. Do this to remember that I am now that lamb that's slain, and my blood covers and forgives, and that's what makes you right with God. That, we understand that's the context, that's the story, that's where all this comes from. But is there the possibility also that when Jesus looks across that room and he looks at Peter and he says, do this to remember me, he is also talking about very specific moments that Jesus has done something with Peter. And he's saying, Peter, every time you lift this cup up, every year at Passover when you do this. Now, we in the church do it more often than that. Um, but every time you do this, do this to remember, not am I the lamb that was slain, but I'm also the guy that walked with you every day. That I'm also the guy that, that sat down and had meals with you. I'm also the guy that put my arm around you when you were struggling and, and we talked about God and we talked about the kingdom of God and I taught you. And remember those moments too. And so to add this, I want to walk through four basic ideas of, um, of memories for all of us. And, uh, and every one of us are going to have, at least at some level, some of these basic context of memories. The first one is the first moment. Matthew chapter 4. One day Jesus was walking along the shore, the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. That's an amazing sentence. They just left and followed him. 
They stopped doing everything that they were doing to, to provide for themselves. They left their family. They left their, their family fishing business, and they just followed Jesus. Something about Jesus, something about that first moment. Maybe they knew a little bit about who he was, but when he walks up to them and says, hey, I want you to follow me. I'm going to teach you how to win people for the kingdom, fish for souls, that you're going to catch people's souls for God. They said, that sounds like what I'm going to do with my life. Instantly, one, one moment they're fishing, the next moment they're, they're, they go down in history as one of the 12 disciples. That, that's that's mind-boggling to me. Something about Jesus caught their attention so strongly. A little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, making their father very angry, leaving the boat and their father behind. I left the I added that part, right? But, but here's the thing with this, is this first moment. Now, here's what I'd like you to do is to process. Some of, this, some of you, this is easier than others. But think about the very first time that you got the, the, the revelation, the, this, this understanding that Jesus is God. The first, the first moment that you could really say, not that just that you heard the name Jesus, but that you could say that you met him personally that you got this personally, that you understood this. Even if you didn't at that moment say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, but you got this, this understanding that he is God and that you saw something about him. This, this is one of the things that I, there's a, there's a kind of a duality here, but um, that I, I, uh, a little bit envious of people that get saved later in life. I grew up in the church. My parents got saved when I was around three or four and they started going to church and that's when I went started going to church. I, I remember... I remember worship services at four years old. I started playing the drums in church at five. So I, I remember some very, very young church kind of things. But I also remember when I was eight years old, this really big moment that I recognized that Jesus is God in a way that I don't know if I could even verbalize today because I understand it so much more now. It was so it was so base and so... Um, um, limited at that point, but I recognize Jesus is God. He's bigger than anything. So think for yourself, when is the first moment that you, of, of Jesus, the first Jesus, real profound Jesus moment that you realized that he was God? Because see, we're going to take communion together here in a little bit. And this is, this is part of what he's saying is, remember, this is about me. Well, I think one of the things is remembering who he is, remembering that thing. The next thing is this, I would, I would call the profound moment, Matthew chapter 14. Me, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. They were out on the boat, Jesus was on the land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. That, that's cool enough right there. You could stop right there and the story would be amazing. When the disciples saw him walking in the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. I heard a speaker years ago talk about this and say, well, that's just because of their lack of faith. They thought he was a ghost. This is a son of God. You know, like somehow they had demeaned him because they thought he was a ghost. Do you really think Jesus in the middle of the night comes walking on the water and they're like, oh, it's Jesus. Do you really think that's what they thought? That that's what they, and somehow that made them less of a faith person that they reacted just like we would have? Scared and run? I, I, 
I had this conversation with my son one time, a middle child, Isaac. We had a basement in our last house that was, it wasn't like a, a full livable basement. It was, it was a partial and all kinds. Of, I mean, it was, it, it was dark and concrete And so one time I, I hear him, he's down there doing stuff, and he turns the light off at the bottom of the stairs. <clears throat> no, he starts up the stairs, and his brother turns the light off at the top of the stairs. And by the time he comes out of that stairwell, he's full blast, 100 miles an hour, like bursting out of the thing. And he looks around because we're just standing there looking at him because he realized we knew he was scared to death of the basement, right? And, and I said, you scared of that? No, you know, it's just what, and I was like, okay, it's okay, Isaac. Very rarely do I go down there that by the time I get to the top of the stairs, I'm not going faster than the bottom. I'm a grown man and there's just a little bit of, I don't know what's back there. You know, if I turn around and look, then I'm a wimp, so I just walk faster, right? Some of you the same way, you know, you're like, oh, well, he's a chicken. Many of us in this room are chickens. Jesus comes walking to you on the water, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to be the guy, I used to do this when I was a kid, go to a scary movie and watch the movie through my coat sleeve. Anybody else do that? Am I the only nut job in here? <laughs> Right? So they, they think it's a ghost. Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. Then Peter called to him. Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. I love that statement. First, the sentence doesn't make sense if you think about it. Okay, let's say it's a demon walking on the water. Jesus, if it's really you, the demon's like, it's me. It's really that guy you're talking about. You know, the sentence doesn't make sense. If it's really you asking me to come out there, that doesn't make sense. There's no way you can make sense of that sentence. But the mentality behind it I get. Jesus, I want to be where you are. This is a big bad storm. Waves are rocking and rolling. The boat's going down. You're standing there on the water. I want to be where you are. I don't think that Peter was seeing this as a cool, oh, this would be a great faith thing if I could walk on the water like you. I don't think that's what it is. I think he, Peter was so caught up in the moment, and he sees Jesus, and he just wants to be where Jesus is, and he knows that's where safety is, and he knows that's where the, 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 the protection is. And so he says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me, and I'll be there with you. I'm coming. He, I think he was already climbing over the side as he's saying it. And Jesus says, yes. Come to me. And so Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. I, the, the way I process stuff, uh, it's my personality, it's how I'm wired, is I think through things. I, 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 I analyze stuff. I'm, I, I'm an analytical person. That's how I'm wired. Um, processing stuff through an emotional context is way down the line for me. It's not the way I think about most things. There's some things that automatically come into that purview, but it's not who I am. And there's something about this story that always gets me because there is no rational, thinking, analytical person that would do what Peter did. But see, he gets caught up in the presence of Jesus, which, by the way, is a good thing. He gets so caught up just with, the, with Jesus being out there on the water that he doesn't think about the fact that water will not hold you. You're going to sink in that. He's not going over the density of the water. He's not going over the magnitude of the storm. He's not processing any of the available information that he should be as a rational human being thinking about. All that he knows is Jesus is out there, and he's in here, and he wants to be out there. 
And so he, he literally crawls out of a boat that is floating on the water to stand on water that he is going to sink in. And he takes the first few steps, totally just focused on Jesus, excited. And then he begins to look at the wind and waves. Because when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus replied. Why did you doubt me? Now, I think there's two ways to see this. One is, Jesus is just reprimanding Peter horribly. You, you have no faith, Peter. I don't think that's necessarily what is going on here. I think, I think the bigger picture of what is going on here, let me ask it this way. If Jesus is saying to Peter, who is out on the water and then starts sinking, you have no faith or little faith, what is he saying to the guy still in the boat? If he's reprimanding Peter, then what do they get after this is over? See, I don't think he was totally reprimanding Peter. I think there was a little bit of that because he's saying, Peter, you had a faith moment. You stepped out. You actually felt water solid. None of us in this room has walked on water that is solid. You say, oh, I go ice fishing off. That's not what I'm talking about. You, I mean, just, just water, and you walk out on it, and it is solid under your feet. None of us have ever experienced that. But Peter did. And so when Jesus is saying, yeah, you have little faith, I think what he's saying is, Peter, you were getting it. You were understanding it. You were doing something in faith that nobody's ever done or ever will do since. But... but why did you give up? Why did you quit? Why did you start looking at the stuff? And I think at the same time, that's a rebuke to the guys in the boat. Peter, have little faith. You got all the way this far, and then I had to grab you, which is not bad. Jesus doesn't mind reaching down and grabbing you in the middle of the waves. He doesn't. But it'd be cooler if you could just walk out there and just stand there for a while. Maybe tap dance. Maybe eat a sandwich. Because you're standing on water. Revel in that. So when he says, you have little faith, why did you doubt me? He's saying the sinking part. Everything else was proof of the opposite. Peter is the only guy that got out of the boat. This is the profound thing that I, I want you to process. Because I believe every one of us in here have, have had circumstances like this. And if you say, I don't think I ever have. Then, then let God start that today. He wants to do some pretty profound things. So have you ever, have you ever as, as we're looking back in memory, have you ever seen Jesus do just really bigger than you stuff? That's, that's part of what I think he's saying when he says, do this to remember me. Not just the blood covenant, but remember when you walked out on the water, Peter? I wonder how many times Peter is, is I'm saying decades later, and Peter is sitting there and saying, I walked on water. I've often wondered this. Okay, maybe this, I feel like I'm telling you how crazy I am this morning, but have you ever tried to walk on water? Am I the only one that's ever tried to walk on water? Please raise your hand if you tried it. Okay, thank you, Jesus. I'm not the only crazy. You know, you just try once just to see, just to like, nope, not today, you know, but at least you gave it a run. I wonder how many times Peter might have did that later in life. Walking by the seashore and just kind of walked out into the water just to see, and it comes up to his ankle. He's like, "Nope," you know. That, 
I, I don't know, but I can tell you he, he remembered this. And I wonder how many times when he sat down and he take, took a Passover meal and he reached for the cup and he broke the bread, I wonder when those memories started coming back and the memory of walking on the water. You have some profound things that Jesus has done in your past, in your life, but you've got to remember it. You've got you to think there. You've got to go there. The third one is forgiveness. John chapter 8. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him. That, that's all this was. This didn't have to do with the woman. didn't have to do with the man who, parenthetically, was not there. didn't have to do with any of this. It didn't have to do with morality. It didn't have to do with God's law and God's code and, and making sure God's in charge. It had nothing to do with all of that. These guys were just trying to trap Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. They were, they were very willing and ready and, and were about to uh, kill this woman. This woman was going to die today. That's all that, in their heads, that's all that mattered about the woman. Why? Because she had done something that broke their law. Not hurt God's heart or did something against God, but just broke the law that they were supposed to be enforcing. It wasn't about the woman. They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I'm not going to talk about writing in the dust. That's, I, that's a different time. I just want to focus on, on one thing here. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, amazing statement, neither do, do I. He didn't, remember what John three seventeen says, he didn't come to condemn us. He came to, to uh, convict us, came to forgive us, came to draw us in close, not condemn us. So he says, neither do I, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. So here is the next thing, is that moment when you, when, when you have felt, and they're, and they're should be multiple of these, by the way. But that moment when you have felt forgiveness, not just cognitively understood that his blood cleanses me and washes me and I'm right with God, but, but you felt it. You felt forgiveness. You felt clean. You, you, you understood what that was. I, I, I think about this with the shower. I, I love to take a shower, by the way. It's one of my favorite things. It's like my top two or three favorite things on the planet is taking a shower. And in fact, Wednesday night we were talking, and, and Pat said he has a seat in his shower. I had one of those years ago. I don't in this shower now. I, I, it makes me sad because I like a seat in the shower. It's much easier to eat a ham sandwich on a seat in the shower than if you're standing. You think I'm kidding, but, <laughs> but there's something about Taking a shower and then two or three hours later taking another shower, yeah, it's nice. But there's something about being totally filthy, grimy, muddy, oily, dirty, and taking a shower. There's something about that. And, and that's not even close to what it feels like. I've heard people describe it anyways. I felt like I had a big weight on my shoulders. I felt like I had a big backpack full of lead, and, and the Lord forgives me, and it's like he just took it off of me. I, I, there's something about being forgiven and knowing it. And when Jesus looks across the table at these disciples, and I believe looks across time and looks at us, 
And he says, when you do this, do this to remember me. Do this to remember that time that you felt forgiven. That you felt his forgiveness. That you know what it is to feel clean. And this is something that I think we have to, 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 uh, to chase after our entire life. Is Lord, I want to walk in your forgiveness. I want to walk in your blood covering. And I don't want to just take it for granted. Lord, I want to be forgiven. But Lord, I also want to feel forgiven. And I think this is one of the traps that Christians that have been saved a while can get into. Is we stop realizing the significance of being forgiven. We take it for granted because we stop thinking we're that sinful. We, we, as Scripture says, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Instead of saying, Lord, I want to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven today. The last one is worth. John chapter 21. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Peter was out on the water fishing again. Do you realize the first time Jesus comes to Peter, he's fishing. The next time Peter fishes is after the resurrection because he was going back to his old lifestyle. You understand the importance of that? God had called him. Jesus specifically had said to him, I want to teach you how to be a fisherman, and this is what you're going to do the entire existence of your, your life. And when Jesus sees him again on the shore there, Peter is out on the water with some of the other disciples, and they'd gone back to fishing because this whole Jesus thing didn't work out. Jesus is dead. It didn't work out, and so they went back to their old life. Guys, every one of us in here can, can, will have to come face-to-face -face at that different times. And, and depending on how long you've been a Christian, sometimes it's just incrementally. We just go back to, to a few things, not the big things, not the big sins. We just go back to some of the, the smaller things, which are attitudes of the heart and tents of mind, things like that. And Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I've talked about this. I don't want to unpack this all this morning. But the reason, part of the reason, a major part of the reason Jesus asked him three times is because that's how many times Peter denied him. Peter denied knowing him three different times. So Jesus does it three times. He, Jesus can teach more in just a few sentences than somebody like me can teach in weeks and weeks. Just a few sentences. And he gets it all encapsulated in a few sentences. And everything from forgiveness to redemption to, to the feelings that you had and, and the rejection in your spirit, everything, Jesus wraps it up in a few little sentences and hands it to Peter and the third time, it says, Peter is agonized over this. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's leave all of the other stuff. There's some wonderful stuff in this, but I just want to focus on the feed my sheep part. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, regardless of what you've done in the past, I have created you to use you. And I'm going to use you. But you've got to stop beating yourself up. Stop assuming you can't be used. Stop assuming you're not of worth. Every single human being on this planet, God designed specifically to be used by him. Every one of us in this room, you were designed by God to be a voice of the gospel to the nations, a representative of Jesus Christ. Don't let you in your mind or Satan tell you that you're disqualified. You're not disqualified. Jesus is sitting there with Peter after Peter had denied him and even cursed the whole thing. He said, Peter... Just do what I've called you to do. 
But Jesus, just do what I called you to do. But I, just do what I called you to do. My blood is big enough to handle anything. Just do what I've called you to do. Part of that is, do you remember this? Because everyone in this room, you have worth to Jesus. And you've got to remember that. You've got to lock into that. You've got to own that. In times when you're struggling, remember that you have worth to Jesus. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing you do will change that. You may need to go back to Jesus and let his blood cover you and forgive you, but nothing is going to change the fact that he created you to use you. Any age, any circumstance of life, whatever, he's, called, he's created you to use you. So we're going to take communion together. And this is the way that I would like us to do it this morning. Is um, <clears throat> I believe the Lord will lead somebody to the platform to play some music and sing for us. You two will do nicely. Uh, and this, when, this is what I'd like us to do. We're going to do this individually, okay? You're going to serve yourself. You're going to do this individually. And uh, they're going to be singing. But what I'd like you to do is when you get the elements of this and, you, and, you, and we've moved some chairs up here. You've got plenty of room. You can find a place up here to kneel, sit. You can go back to your seat. We, we just want you to just, whatever's comfortable for you, just, just get alone with God. And I would like to suggest that you do this. Take the opportunity to say, Lord, I remember some things. Anytime I've ever taken communion since I was a little kid, I always do the same thing. I always repent. Lord, forgive me. Wash me clean. Because that's what it's about. Why? why? Plus, I don't want to do it unworthily the way 1 Corinthians 11 says. I I just want to get right with you, Lord. Forgive me. Wash me clean. I'm going to sit right over here, and I'm going to do that same thing in just a few minutes here. Jesus, wash me clean. Forgive me. I would like to suggest one other thing. is While you're taking the bread, um, to think about, Jesus, you also heal. You can heal me. If you've got something going on in your physical body, ask him to heal you while, what better time, right? I mean, that's, that's what this represents. What better time to say, Lord, I ask you to heal my body too. So if you have the opportunity, we're going we're gonna to take the, the, just a few minutes here. You can, you can go as soon as, you're, as, as you feel like you need to or whatever, but let me pray over this. And then we put some things up here for you to uh, think about. Remember that he loves you. Remember he died for you. Remember he wants to forgive you and he wants to use you. Think about that, those things while you're praying and and let the Holy Spirit put them in your heart. Let me pray for us and then uh, you're welcome to come take this at your leisure. Lord, we, we thank you for your blood, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for this amazing gift that you, that you just pour out forgiveness into our lives. I want to ask you that every one of us in here would would grab onto that to ask for forgiveness and then, Lord, not to take it for granted, but to walk in it. Lord, we ask you to touch our physical bodies too. You said by your stripes that you took a Calvary that you heal us. So, Lord, we pray for that. And I pray for, for different people. I pray for Harry right here in this room. Lord, some different people that, that um, I can't say out loud, but that are dealing with some physical stuff. Lord, heal our bodies. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.
Let's have a meal. Let me reveal who I am. I'm your Savior. And I will kneel down and wash all the sin from your soul. I'm your servant, and I am all you need. I'm the lamb that was slain, and my blood washes you clean. I'm the pure sacrifice. Let my life give you life on the land. And I am the bread given for every man. I sustain you. my blood shed for all I'm redemption and I am all you need I am everything I'm the lamb that was slain and my blood washes you clean I'm the pure sacrifice let my life give you life I'm the Washes us clean. 
You're the pure sacrifice. Let your life give us life. You're the Lamb. We cry worthy. We cry worthy. We cry. Give us life. You're the light. 